You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, and welcome to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. This week's episode was recorded in front of a live audience of several hundred business owners at the Business Gateway Conference in the rural Scottish borders. Not that that made me any more filtered. If anything, I've had to edit a little harder this week because I still can't afford those lawyer's letters. Through to about 18 minutes in, I share my personal process on how to start and grow a business and what I have learned along the way. And then my nine reasons why you may be struggling with growth and still haven't been bought by IBM yet. At 18 minutes in, the tables are turned and journalist David Ferguson of Ferguson Media puts me in the hot seat and grills me on my business story over five very different types of companies and uses his professional prowess to unpick how and why, after just coming through the lowest point of my career to date, I am now back for more with startup number five. So over to David Ferguson. Vicky was born in Norwich, but grew up, she tells me, with a desire to escape England's east coast and head for the bright city lights of London. She started her first company at university and is now helping Police Scotland uncover fake goods, among many other things. In between, she's ridden quite a roller coaster of entrepreneurship in the data world, terrific highs and some really painful lows. Scotland's most inspiring business person of the year last year, innovator of the year in the Every Woman in Technology Awards and Top Tech Startup in Europe are just some of the awards to come Vicky's way in recent years. Also known now as the Entrepreneur's Agony Ant, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Vicky Brock. Thank you. A roller coaster, that's a good way of describing it. I started my life in rural North Apache, just outside Norwich. The single, you know, the, the, the sliding doors film, you know, the single moment that makes your life go in a different direction. Mine was my parents, I have no idea to this day how they afforded it, bought me an Acorn Electron computer. Acorn Electron was the very first affordable PC aimed at the consumer market. Came with a tape recorder and you have to go buy a magazine. If you want to play a game, to buy a magazine and spend an entire week or weekend typing in ones and zeros to press run at the end for nothing to happen generally. And then you would have to read the whole thing again to try to figure out if it was a misprint in the magazine and it was never going to work or whether it was your coding. I've gone on to run tech companies. I am not a coder. That was the pinnacle of my development career at kind of eight years old. But um, it did mean that when I did achieve my biggest goal in life, which was to escape Norfolk and go to London, I found myself like the poorest person in the whole of a very prestigious university and in a very expensive city. So I knew straight away I needed a side hustle or five if I was going to financially survive in the big world that I had craved getting to. 
And because I had my little computing skills, plus my mother had taught me to type, she'd made me take typing at school, which was so humiliating. I prized myself as being the biggest genius in Norfolk, right? And I was there with all these girls who were doing typing GCSE. But my mother was right. She was like, if your big, ridiculous dreams that are completely delusional don't pan out, if you can type, you will always get a job. And it was so true because I got to university discovered this little computer room that nobody knew was there. It was in the basement. It was free. Everything was free. The paper was free. The discs were free. And I could type. And so I charged my rich fellow students to type up their handwritten essays. And I'm a horrible feeling. Five businesses later, it's still the most profitable business I ever ran. <laughs> Certainly kept me in beer and kebabs throughout my student life. Because I didn't know... And I still can't spell, which is really annoying given it's the name of my podcast, the word entrepreneur. I didn't know it existed. I didn't know that what I was exhibiting was like type A kind of crazy entrepreneur behavior. I didn't know such a thing existed. I then I didn't know that could be my job. I went and got a real job for a decade. I actually did English at university because I had no confidence in my maths or my computing, which is such a female thing, I, I, I think. Um, so I did English instead, and what do you do if you've done an English degree? Go work in the theatre, obviously, um, which is what I did. And because I had and knew how to use computers, like my second day, they put me in charge of the box office IT systems, and technology found me despite myself, which was a wonderful thing. So I did the, te the, the corporate, not corporate, but I did real jobs that I got paid for for a decade. And then we'll talk about this in the discussion afterwards. I found myself living and working in Inverness and I set up my, my second company, Inverness. And I've done like three more in the last 15 years, each at different scales, actually, of complexity and each faster. Um, this one um, just started a month ago, and I reckon we'll have achieved more by the end of the four-month period that will end in February than I did in the first 18 months of my last company, and probably the entirety of my company before that. The reason is because I have now got a process. I've got a process for how I start companies, and I've got a process for how I grow companies. But as I start, I go through this process to myself. And I've spent the, the best part of the last year going through this process and scrubbing out ideas somewhere along the line until I got to this one. Um, and that's a really important point, is that you know, the very first idea you have is almost certainly not the idea that, that becomes your business. You iterate through. But I think the most important part is to find a pain worth solving. Now, there's two ways you can do business, right? You can do pain or joy and delight. Now, personally, I prefer pain because I think pain is way easier than delight. I'm not very good at delight. Uh, but I know people that are working in the hospitality, food and drink, you know, delight is your world perhaps more than pain. Um, but I like pain because it's easier, frankly, in my opinion, to find a big, hollering, scary pain that somebody will pay you to solve. Pay you to solve is the really other important thing. It's the difference between an inventor and a business person. <laughs> like, it's great to have a crazy, wild idea, but is somebody actually going to pay you to do it? And if there isn't anybody out there that's willing to pay, not just once, but pay twice, Heard a wonderful expression yesterday. I can't believe I've gotten a whole through my whole life and not heard it before. A customer is somebody who's bought from you twice. And I was like, yes, that explains the last business. You do not have to build a big company to prove this stuff out. 
Nearly everything you can do on paper or you can do with a relatively light touch demo concept or a first iteration of your product that you put out there and you hold your breath and you cross your legs and fingers and everything and go, I don't like it. And invariably, they don't, um, which is a very important lesson. And as I say, over the last year, I've been going through this process um, and crossing things off at, at different places. And sometimes the pain is brilliant. The solution in your little tiny mind is fantastic. There's a market. People will pay for this. You are just not the right person to do this business. I was approached by a VC who knew I was out shopping for my next startup. Um, and I was, I was working a bit too hard on trying to come up with the next idea. If I'd just kind of chilled out, gone up a hill, looked at some sea for a while, it'd come quicker that I was studiously going to work every day to come up with the next idea. And it wasn't happening. And he called me and said, look, if you want to do something in the drone insurance space, I'd invest... Okay, great, drone insurance. And I went off and did my homework and learned everything about drone insurance. Turns out, drones break, get lost, but they could take down a plane, you know, they can get into all sorts of situations. Like, wow, drones are a thing that you really need insurance for. And then, you know, I, I like one day I was in the bath and I had to slap myself around the face and go, you know nothing about insurance. You know nothing about financial services. You don't know anybody that does and you know nothing about drones. Cross it off and move on, you know, get back to something you know a little bit about. Either you know a bit, little bit about the customer, you know a little bit about the market, you know a little bit about the skills that will be required to execute this. And because you have to deliver the solution at profit. And there are just some ideas that are better in somebody else's hands. And personally, I mean, I can say this because I'm one of those annoying people that has a million ideas before breakfast. And my trouble is focusing on which idea I'm going to do for the next five years as opposed to having the idea. But ideas are easy. It's the executing and making them real and still doing them five years in where everybody's bored and it's not going as well as you thought it would that is actually business you you do have to iterate a lot my very first idea for my last business was that I wanted to go into a shop and I wanted all the trousers to tell me if they fitted because I was sick of trying them on and I had like put on a bit of weight at that point. I didn't know what size I needed. And in fact, I didn't want to buy the size I actually needed. So I was having this whole battle with the whole shop of like, I just want to know which pair of trousers in the whole shop will fit me. And I'm a data geek because I can solve that problem with tech. And you know, it's true. That is a solvable problem with tech. There just like was no crazy market for that. And I didn't, how do I know there was no market for that? I actually built a 200 pound website, did the data work, I made a little database. You could measure yourself, put stuff in, and it would tell you what size to buy. And, and I mean, and I did it like at the weekends. Now I know businesses who've raised 20, 30 million and they still haven't figured out that it's just not going to work. And the reason it doesn't work is because trousers are manufactured in factories and machines get hot and they have seam tolerances. Two identical pairs of trousers of the same size from the same shop could be two inches difference. When you add up all these seam tolerance, it's not you, it's the trousers. Um, so why try to solve that with tech that focuses on you? Um, so I moved on very quickly. But there was a really interesting commercial problem in that. As I was going out talking to retailers about my crazy trouser idea, they were like, okay, well, you know, there is a problem in retail, but actually it's returns. You know, 
If I could knock a few percentage points off my return rate, I'd make a 2% bottom line difference. I was like, okay, now this is interesting. I found a new problem. It was coming from the market as opposed to like my own internal monologue with trousers. And uh, that turned into my love business, which was Clear Returns. That became top tech startup in Europe. We were working with Debenhams. We were working with Argos. We were working with Marks and Spencers and stuff. And it all went horribly wrong. It went horribly wrong for a lot of reasons that I had a year to think about really hard whilst on gardening leave and under a non-disclosure, non-compete, non-exist agreement. Um, I thought about it really hard. And I came up with nine reasons why I think if you are struggling with growth, if you um, have a great idea, you've done the legwork, you actually followed those instructions, you've got something out there and still it's not selling it's not growing at the rate you thought it was. It's just not the hundred million pound business yet. You were supposed to have sold to IBM by now and be on to the next one. Like, what's going wrong here? And I distilled it down and I had never come across the concept of product market fit. But it's, it's something that gets knocked about quite often. It's a term that gets knocked about quite often. And one very dark, stressed, dreary Sunday afternoon, I asked Google... What are signs that you do not have product market fit? It's like sales cycles take longer than you expected. You know, whatever you do doesn't seem to be working. You have high churn in your sales team. Your investors are unhappy with you. Nothing is going very easily. This is a sign you, your product and your market are not quite aligned. When you do have product market fit, the phone doesn't stop ringing. You cannot keep up with fulfilling your orders. You actually have different problems, but they're problems of delivery, not problems of actually getting people to buy or be interested in your stuff. Uh, oh, great. Uh, that's interesting. Now I know what I need to do next. But there's, a, there's another thing tied up to that. And actually, I, I think this was a, a closer to our problem than actual product market fit was solution market fit. We'd heard the problem of returns. And it's a fascinating problem. Everybody gets obsessed with it. It's really interesting. You get tons of PR. Everybody has a meeting with you. And we'd come up with a very specific data-driven tech solution. In retrospect, it wasn't a whole, absolutely viable, right, simple solution. It was a bit too complex. Lots and lots of reasons. But that solution market fit weren't quite aligned. Now, we're five years in at this point. The frustrating thing is, if I'd understood this process as well then as I do now, let me check that's my timer. Yes, it is. If I'd understood that then, I could have made course corrections so much earlier. The top three, product market fit, you may be not targeting the best segment, you may not have solution market fit, they're all fixable. If you understand those either before you've committed too much time and money or pretty early on, they're fixable. The second set of three, the customer's just not that into you yet. You know, you're not delighting them. You're not understanding the job at, at hand. And as a result, or whatever, they're just not that into you. Your feedback is probably coming from the wrong sources. This was my killer. My investors, PR, like everybody thought we were the best thing ever, except the people we were trying to sell to. And they were like super nice to us and had meetings with us and they did pilots and they did spend money. But all the feedback that we were getting was coming from the industry, 
from the supply chain, it was coming from investors, it was coming from everybody except the one pe person we should be listening to. You may be fishing in the wrong pool, you know, customers over here, you're doing all your marketing and spending all your attention over here. All fixable. Again, if you can get over yourself a little bit and then pay attention to yourself and to your business, you can still solve that. The third set, and um, essentially, would you, knowing what you know now, set up a business at which your biggest target market were the top 20 department stores in Britain or the world? Probably not. This is a terrible market. I mean, we were finding that we'd get halfway through a sale and the entire buying unit would be made redundant. And all the CEO would get fired and so, and the new CEO came in and just like cut it all. If you're not de delivering 10 times more value than the alternatives, including the biggest, scariest competition of all, which is nobody does anything, do nothing is your biggest competition. Overcoming inertia and getting somebody from going doing nothing to doing something is your biggest competition. Um, if you're not delivering 10 times more value than just not bothering, you're really going to be struggling in some of these environments. And the biggest killer of all, in my opinion, wrong people, wrong time, wrong money. And that's the, probably the biggest thing that I learned. Sometimes you just don't win, and it is fair, and it, it's not nice, but you have to move on, and you have to learn from it, and you have to bounce back. And yes, I'm kind of pleased I'm back here doing it all over again. I tried to go too fast in the last business and because by trying to go too fast, I skipped some of the boring steps about, you know, filling in charts and tables that I've currently got my entire team filling in about what we actually know about this market. What does this buying unit look like? And at what stage do they make buying? You know, we're doing the paperwork this time around because we skipped it last time and it killed me. Do less and listen more. Don't get distracted by raising money. Investment attached to investors is a whole different ball game. And your role then as a CEO when you're dealing with investors is super different. I think the final thing I'd highlight is it's really, well, no. It's relatively easy to create a product. It's even semi-easy-ish to create a product somebody will buy once. It's really, really difficult to create something they'll buy again and again. But that's what you have to achieve in order to build an actual business. And I wish you all luck with it and I have many many more painful lessons I'm happy to share but you can also find them on my blog and on my podcast where I ask other people about their painful lessons too we thought we'd have a little chat we thought with there's so much to Vicky's story and um, and the past and she's brought some of it out there but with my background as a journalist maybe I'll be able to bring out some of um, Vicky's broken back story. It was when I was writing that, I thought that sounds a bit like a film. But in terms of looking at what you've scaled and say you've been involved, Vicky, it probably is a bit like the broken back mountain um, <laughs> story. Um, if we can, I just want to start off by taking a bit back then to, I've, I've spoken to you now about what you've done and the businesses you've created over time. If you go right back to those university days or the school days, were you always an entrepreneur, were you always set on being your own boss and running your own businesses? Not at all. I didn't have anybody in my family that had been in business at all. Uh, I didn't have anybody in my family that had been to university. In fact, until one of my cousin's children went to university last year, I was the only person in my family ever to go to university. 
But I, um, I was lucky, I was bright. My parents encouraged that and always gave me good things to read. And, you know, as I say, I don't know how they afforded it, but bought me that little computer and supported and understood. And I think that's why I'm so interested now in working with young entrepreneurs, especially in schools and colleges and at a very young age, because you can't be what you don't see unless you've got people around you and access to peers like this and access to people that show you the footsteps. You don't necessarily follow their footsteps, but to know the footsteps are there and the paths are there it just takes some of that pressure off. I mean, it just means that you, you can spend less time reinventing the wheel and making the same mistakes that other people already made. You can make new, fresh mistakes. <laughs> so, we, we, talk, we spoke about you going to London and, and you spend a lot of time there, and that was what you aimed for. So people might be surprised to learn then that your next step and that big business that you started, really the second one, but the big first big business was in Inverness, in the Highlands. So you went from London to the Highlands. Yeah. Tell us why that happened. Um, so I went to university in London. My first job was actually in Manchester, but um, I met my now husband when we were students in London. And uh, he dutifully commuted up and down to Manchester for two years when I was just, um, had my first job and, and vice versa. So I came back to London and did the normal corporate thing. And then we were both just treading water you know I had I knew I didn't know what my path was but I knew I hadn't found it and he was working at London Stock Exchange and had been on secondment to New York Stock Exchange sounds very grand not a stockbroker guy that works with data no not not like rich I hasten to add um but um had an interesting job with data and he'd been on secondment in the World Trade Center up until about March 2001 so September 11th, 2001, really changed our perspective. Um, and and we, I remember saying, if I'm going to die at my desk, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be doing this if I die at my desk. And we looked around the world as to where we would go. Stephen, my husband, went on holiday to the Highlands when he got his like, leave after things calmed down a bit. He had a couple of weeks leave. He took a train to get around the Highlands. So said, right, we're going to move to the Highlands. <laughs> so we went in from London to the Highlands. Total, typical English invader, I have to say. I put my hands up and I apologise for this. But in fairness, I created a business, uh, created jobs. When and when, oh my God, I can buy a five-bedroom house with a view of the sea for the deposit. I still haven't managed to save in London. Bought a house. And um, then we looked for jobs in Inverness. <laughs> So we started a company. We literally sat down with a big piece of paper, pulled us, made lists of what we knew how to do and started a company to do that. Then reality kicked in in that I'd been working for HP. He'd been working at the London Stock Exchange. What we knew how to do was quite cool. Would you start that company in Inverness in retrospect? Possibly not. But within a year, um, we were working, we were Google Analytics partner, and we set up all of their uh, analytics workshops and training outside North America from Inverness. And they flew, we did the very first one in Glasgow, because I thought that was really far away. <laughs> the floor is really far away from Inverness. And um, they all flew to, to Glasgow, and we did the first one there <laughs> at my convenience. But the reality is, all the rest of the time, we were often doing super scrappy stuff. Really fulfilling scrappy stuff. Like we did tourism businesses website audits. We did Shetland Council's tourism plan. We did 
random stuff behind an Owens Enterprise. We, you know, we did all of this stuff that made money and gave us a nice business, and and we did the Google stuff at the same time. But it's interesting. I was, gosh, like it's a real part of my ego getting in the way of all this stuff. Um, I hated being a lifestyle business. I was so wrong, by the way. I was like, it's the single biggest mistake I made in that business was feeling that a lifestyle business wasn't a proper business. I did another company at the same time. I was invited to join this organization that was starting in the field of digital analytics that was just emerging. And let's have a professional association for all us fellow digital analysts. And I was like, brilliant idea. And they're like, great, do you want to be on the board? And so I did that at the same time. And I was spending a lot of time in America. And so I was really, like, really getting the whole bullshit around, you got to be, go big or go home, you know. It's going to raise a ton of money and we'll do all this. And in my head, I was getting, like, my little business isn't very good or important. And what I need is this kind of business. So I actually set up the blueprint of what business number, business number four was going to be long before I had cut ideas. Like, okay, right, it's got to be a product because here's me selling my time and services and that's not scalable. And I realize now I can never have a big business doing it the way I'm doing and I can't fix it. So I need to have like a big scalable product business. And that means I'll need to raise money, but then that means I'll have this big exit. Actually, I had some amazing advisors around me who told me the process I followed the process and it sort of kind of worked-ish for quite a while, but it was off the back of that feeling somehow insecure, invalid about that type of business that I had in Inverness wasn't a proper business, which is bullshit. I learned that mistake. So would you look back now then, Vicky, and say that there was more potential with that business without going down the routes you went, that in Highlands, in a rural area, that you... No, we've made it as big as we could make it. And every time, even like there was only so many people we could take on, and it still be profitable. So, I, you know, the scale of that business was constrained. That business couldn't be much bigger than it was, and for me, that was a problem. Like my husband kept that business going; he still has that business. Like, you know, when everything was going wrong with the business after that, he he did mock me thoroughly. We couldn't grow it any bigger uh, without radically changing the shape of it. But we did some a lot of things right in that business. And I think it's an important thing about rural businesses is to look outside your own geography. And that's probably what we got right in that business. In the, you know, we had Vodafone come to us for a job via our website. They didn't care we were in Inverness. You know, we were working with Google. We did a big project for Scottish Water. So we, we picked up bits and pieces of really interesting work. So it was viable. So what, what would you say were the keys? I mean, there'll be people here, you know, who, who want to stay in rural areas, mm. but are probably thinking the same thing. How do I scale that up? How do I go? How do I get outside and go further and, and still be based? I felt that business, I was, at one point I was spending a week in the US and three weeks in Inverness. When I then started business number four, I was still living in Inverness and I set business number four up in an incubator, like a business incubator, and I did it very deliberately in Glasgow. And the reason I did it in Glasgow was they were getting everything. They were getting all the PR. They had got these amazing speakers coming. 
I just thought like my business needs to be here. So I spent a year driving up and down the A9 twice a week to locate that business there. I had a foot in each camp, um, but I, I used what was there to my advantage. And in that next business, I did feel that being in that place at that moment in time that was getting all the visibility would help. And, and it did. I did spend a lot of time traveling. Now, it doesn't mean to say it can't work. And I think for certain things, like a more of a product business and manufacturing business, technology business, ironically, you could make it work there. But as a service business, I spent so much time traveling. I mean, three hours everywhere. You've mentioned, and it sort of leads on to the sort of fourth business, which is yeah. sort of almost the elephant in the room. <laughs> um, you're, you know, you've called it the involuntary pause that it brought about. Your journey, yes. you know, your journey through business littered with awards, recognition across Europe, the UK, and, and America. And let, yet last year you were fired as a CEO well, of the company you found. Yes, technically I got resigned. Yes. Um, yeah, because that's really different. <laughs> yeah, so uh, to try to part history with that, okay, I um, had a great idea, got lots of PR very, very quickly. I did what I see a lot of young founders or um, founders generally do when they are in an accelerator or an incubator or they are in a program, they forget they are the product. They are the product. So that program, whatever it is, gets its funding, gets its visibility by you being out everywhere. And it is really easy to realize that a year goes has just gone by and you've been speaking at this and doing all of this and you actually haven't been full-time in your business to the way that you should be. And I think at the very beginning, I mean, we were being canny about it. We needed to get, uh, we needed to get visible in, to get, in order to get investment. And we needed to get investment in order to get people to build our tech. And that was a myth. You don't have to spend the first year of your business raising money. And if you do spend the first year of your business raising money, the amount of money you will be able to raise is very limited compared to the amount of money that you actually need. And I think, particularly at that time, a lot of companies were starting up. Scotland was on its big startup agenda. There was a lot of focus on pitching, raising money, and you know, doing all of this. Startup success was being measured on how much money they've raised. And actually, how much money you've raised means, you know, means how much control have you given up, and how much of your own company have you sold to somebody else. So how many of your decisions have you just given away to somebody else, especially when you raise money early. And I had, by the time I was three years in, I had 38 individual angel investors. I was managing all of those angel investors. Some of those people had put £5,000 in my business and thought that that gave the right to spend my time telling me how I should be running the company. I also had a too big a board of directors for the size of company that we were. And actually, I'd been trying to do things properly. So I actually wanted advice. I wanted people around me who'd walked this path before. And whilst it wasn't my choice or decision to make my board as big as it was, I didn't fight it at the time with the energy I would fight that decision now because it was like yeah you know I realized how little I know and how I do need adult supervision and I do need these people around me 
But legally, right, one board seat, one vote. So actually, when the time goes on and when things get tough, the only one with any in- intimate knowledge of my company on the board, I had three angel investors on the board who had their own agenda. And you know, as a board, you have to follow the board. The board vote, you have to follow it until the moment you go, you know what, already, I can't get behind this. So my board told me, well, that's okay. We're going to take all your responsibilities away. You're going to have to keep the job title of CEO, but frankly, you've got no budgetary responsibility, no line management responsibility, no strategic responsibility, oh, and no product responsibility. Go and work in sales. Um, And I looked back at my shareholder agreement from my first investment round. I met with my lawyers. They were like, don't get fired before the 17th of April. And I like, it was my mantra, you know, like my Zen mantra, don't get fired before the 17th of April. 17th of April comes, um, 20th of April, we have a board meeting. I present my back me or sack me strategy. They didn't back me. They didn't back me. They didn't instantly sack me. Um, and so I resigned as CEO, not as founder, not, not from the company. I resigned as CEO. Came back with a big handover plan. I gave them six months notice. I said, we'll recruit new CEOs. What I'd like them to do, blah blah. Three weeks into that, they stuck me on gardening leave. You know, like properly take your belongings in a box and give your computer back and all your passwords changed and go. If that had been in Inverness, that'd been fantastic because I had a beautiful garden. But now I was living in a you know in a flat in Glasgow with no garden. Uh, so I had four months and I wasn't allowed to have any contact with any clients. And you start like literally, it was it was brutal. Actually. You've spoken about that. You've been quite open about that in the TED talk you gave, Vicky, about yeah. the grief you went through. You felt it was like uh, going through a divorce. It was, it was a loss of your company, as if it was. Yeah. You know, was that the lowest you've been in your business? Yeah, I think so. At that point when I was cut off from everybody. I calculated, like, this is how bored I was. I calculated how many hours I'd spent on that business. Um, and I'd done nearly, I'd spent nearly 20,000 hours on that company, which averaged 10.8 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I went from that to nothing, like, no phone calls, nothing. And that was, that was actually really difficult. It was the lowest point, but... Somebody got in touch with me who'd been through a similar experience and she became my gardening leave coach. She had a call, like the first Monday morning, she had this call with me. She's like, right, you know, we need to plan. It's going to be the best gardening leave ever and you need a project. I'm like, what are you going to do with your gardening leave? I'm like, I'm going to go to gardens. She's like, okay, it's a bit literal, but (laughs) we can work with that. Like, how many gardens are you going to go to? Like, what's the furthest garden you're going to go to? Like, we made this plan. It's the most beautiful thing. If I can ever do that for somebody else, call me. (laughs) There were pictures of Vicky in different gardens. Yeah, we had an Instagram account. It was my gorilla gardener account. You certainly have a different tape on gardening leave. Yeah, she made me send her a new selfie each week in a different garden. It's just like for a routine, it was really good. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you went down, you know, to the depths you would, you, you would imagine in that yeah. time for you as a person and as a business person. Obviously, your, your confidence took a real, a real yeah, jolt with that. I did actually. In your belief. So, the obvious question is, you had lots of laurels. <laughs> Why did you come back? Why did you decide you had to start another company? And, and tell us a little bit about the, 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 this fifth company that you've started. Yeah, so well, basically, technically, I'm unemployable, right? And um, it's really funny. I mean, literally, I've been told that by headhunters. Well, no, recruiters say you're unemployable. Headhunters say, 
oh, we love you. Like, you're so fascinating, but very difficult to place. <laughs> so, like, I went through the, okay, right, this is me, done, like, I'll never work again. I mean, and actually, you know, I was told, I was told, you, know, you will never raise money in this country again. And I thought, if you were half-assed competent, you would know I didn't raise money in this country to start with, but I wrote it at London. Anyway, <laughs> not that I'm bitter. Um, but, like, my... For me, it's compulsion. Like I just love it. I love all things startups. I love, entre- I love like hearing about other people's businesses ideas. I just, I just love it, love it, love it. And I, as the, the first week of my gardening leave was up, I went into another accelerator. I was like, I haven't got an idea, but I'll just show up every day and I'll work really hard until I have one. Can I come? And they were like, okay. And they you know it was great. And but that was that was too early. And I was just working so hard at having the next big idea, forgetting that it had taken a year of iteration the last time between when I first started thinking about perfect sized trousers. I have so many domains. Every time I have an idea, I buy all the domain names. I'm like, oh, hundreds. And some, some, every once in a while, I get this credit card bill. And I'm like, what? And all these domains that I forgot I had have renewed. Um, but yeah, so it took a year from my perfect trousers to clear returns. And it's funny, it's taken nearly a year. So what would you say, looking back on that, what would you say were the key steps that brought you back from that and brought you back to where you are? Getting out back in the world and just being useful. I mean, I literally said, like, I'll have a coffee with anybody who wants to pick my brains about anything. And, like, sometimes I'd take the city-linked bus, you know, from Glasgow, I live the far side of Glasgow, you know, over to Edinburgh to have, like, a coffee with somebody or walk all the way into town the other thing I'd left my last company with was nothing, like no money. My last salary went on legal bills, <laughs> um, so I didn't have any money, so I could walk into Glasgow and have coffee. But I did this whole period of just having ridiculous amounts of cup of coffee and cake um, with people, and still haven't, still got a stone to go back to my way before I left Clear Returns um, because I ate so much cake, but. Um, that was a good thing. I did a lot of that. You know, it's not stupid. I actually did yoga for a while, and that was really good. Um, and I just started to do other stuff. I started blogging, started doing the podcasts, and I, I started the Entrepreneur Agony on thing as a concept. And my gosh, did that take off. I feel a bit out of my depth here. <laughs> no, it was just like all of that stuff really helped. And then I started to go, you know what? It doesn't need to be my idea be anybody's idea and that's when this one came together I decided I set dark market fit up as like a little informal gang of entrepreneurs I was doing day I got some day rate stuff a lot of my old clients as soon as I was legally allowed to work with them all popped back up and said yay you're back you know have this contract it was bizarre I mean actually kind of suddenly had paid work but I saw this challenge go out. There's a program called CivTech, and it takes public sector innovation and government innovation challenges. So getting young startups and SMEs solving contracts and innovation problems that they'd never get a shot at getting through the procurement system. And so the, sponsor, like the public sector will sponsor will put out a challenge and lots of startups can apply, or existing companies can apply to solve the challenge, and they'll pick one or two companies to work on the challenge. And I saw this challenge, which was from Police Scotland and HMRC, going, how do we stop fake goods being sold online? 
And actually, the maths and tech of returns and the maths and tech of fakes and illicit trade are actually really super similar. I was like, well, you know, an answer to that one. Um, and I applied. It was like a typical me style. The deadline was at 12, and I put the application in at like 11. And um, then I told the people in the bid that they were in the bid. When we got an interview, I was like, oh, guys, um, like, we've got an interview with this thing I haven't told you about, but it's going to be amazing. And they took a chance, and we got successful on that. So now what I love about it is that we've got a client in the room. So we've got HMRC and Police Scotland and Trading Standards in the room with us. We're, like, living, we can't go over to the Ford place because it's, like, secure, but they come to us. We're, like, walking in their shoes, understanding their problems, knowing what they need to fix and knowing what job they need done. And um, it means this next four months we can build a tech solution for our first wave of customers. Now, I'm not building this to solve their problem or not just only their problem. I'm building a business, but I'm doing it. I'm building my next business with my customer as like a full-time lodger, which is great. I could talk to you all day, Vicky, but I know that there there'll be hopefully there'll be some questions. If people got some questions in the audience, anything more you'd like to know from Vicky about? She's obviously been on a unique journey, a journey <laughs> that will probably resonate, I'm sure, with, with plenty of us about the, the highs and the lows. Yes, go on. Oh, do you have any hobbies? I am obsessed with plants. So when I was in Inverness, I built a garden out of a hillside, and that's what like. It, that took my physical energy, you know, like I chopped things and I cut things and I smashed bricks. And I think that physical energy is then what went into my next business. And that was one of the things I completely lost. In that last company, I lost all sense of myself. I didn't have life outside it, which meant that when that ended, um, that isolation was much more intense. But I have, I've like got these carnivorous plants. It's like a bit creepy. I'm not a psychopath. I've done the test. I'm so not a psychopath. How many um, did you tip in the test? I, I, I did the, the psychopath test because I, I knew I had a psychopath in my company and I was right. Um, but, you know the CEOs are the top <laughs> on the psychopath not, test. You know what? Yeah. That's Journalists are about number five That's right amazing. enough as well. Yeah. No, I love carnivorous plants. I just love them. They're like almost a pet. But one that you don't have to, apart from keeping them in water, that's all you have to do to keep them alive. And you don't have to have any vet bills or anything like that. And um, I live right on the river, so they, they just feed themselves. They eat all the flies. Good question. <laughs> Anybody else got any questions? Yes. So Amanda's question, if you yeah. didn't hear at the back, was, is the lifestyle business, is that enough for you? Is that enough for you now? I have a different perspective on that question now. So when I had a lifestyle business... I thought not. Then I built the absolute antithesis of it, and I didn't have a life. Now, I'm building this next business. I am going to build another business of scale. I'm doing that deliberately because it's easier. The, and as I look back, the lifestyle business, and I hate the term, but the husband and wife business was the hardest thing we couldn't take, you know, we took virtually no holidays because we couldn't be out of the business at the same time. We once hired my mom to, like, look after my mobile phone and answer email, and she didn't quite get tech right, so nothing quite happened. But that was, like, super difficult. And all of the work of 
the work and the insecurity, getting the process of getting the work and insecurity with that were harder, and so the ups and downs were more extreme in that business. So the reason that I'm doing this one from a place where, okay, right, I want to know I can do this big because if I can't, I'll just iterate till I've got a better idea, is largely because I um, don't like the financial instability of what I still associate with that peaks and famines. We need to value and support those businesses a hell of a lot more than we do. You've been listening to David Ferguson interview me, Vicky Brock, at the Business Gateway Borders Conference. You can subscribe to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and when I organise myself, I shall try my best to put the slides that went with that presentation up on my blog at vickybrock.com slash blog.